This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luca Levitz Mable. And I'm Yannick Mayo. And what's our topic this week, Yannick? Software versioning and flexibility in the era of cloud services. Good. Before you start, I have a couple of notes for follow-up, and then you'll be able to jump on the subject. So first, um, I wasn't sure about the name of the like InfoSec conference last week where Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek spoke about their Jeep uh, hacking. So the one I was referring to is DEFCOM. Also, um, earlier this week, the the DEFCOM team releases most of their talk, most of the talk that happened during that conference. And obviously, uh, Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek's talk is not available on YouTube. So it was strongly... Uh, suggests the listener to go watch it and obviously it's an overview of the paper they release on twitter but it's also interesting because those guys are really funny they are really good presenters so i strongly suggest you to watch it just for the entertainment purpose of uh, those two guys on the stage and that was it for follow-up it was short again this week yeah they're getting pretty short yeah we like Uh, this we like them this way yeah so this episode is going to be somewhat of a complimentary episode to the episode 11 that you did um, about dealing with new versions of software. Mm. And the reason for this is something we talked about a little bit last week, which is uh, I installed the watchOS 2 beta on my Apple Watch, and it took all afternoon to install. <laughs> and I thought that maybe if there were going to be as many watchOS updates as there were iOS updates uh, this OS cycle that it could potentially cause frustration in Apple Watch users going forward. And I started thinking about, well, is there such a thing as an operating system update burnout? And if so, what can we do to reduce the possibility of that burnout by trying to make as much stuff updatable without requiring an operating system update? Uh, specifically. So that's sort of the mindset that I have going into this whole thing. Mm. And I'm going to start off by talking about modularization. Uh, For a long time, I found it incredibly stupid that, uh, like, you know, Google has Chrome OS, which is an operating system that is entirely capable of updating itself automatically without thinking about it. And it happens several times a week. Well, they have another operating system called Android, and let's not talk about the update situation on that operating system, because it's completely the opposite. It takes maybe a year, maybe more, maybe never to get an update for your phone if it runs Android, and it was sort of a shocking difference. And I think that even within Google, there were some people who noticed this and who said, this isn't very tenable for us to build a sustainable uh, software platform going forward. So about two years ago, uh, Google began to realize that they they should probably split a lot of things out of the core OS and into various modules. Uh, The one that you've probably heard of is called Google Play Services, which is sort of the big package for a lot of these things. But there are many modules that we'll go into. Before you go on, can you remind me something about the history of those uh, two products? I don't remember which one came first. So it's kind of tough, but I they acquired Android before Chrome OS was a thing. Uh, release-wise, I'm not sure. I think Android may have been... Uh, Android definitely came out in 2008 because it was the same year as the iPhone 3G. Chrome OS, I want to say it was like 2010. 
That sounds about right. Yeah, Around the time of the iPad. It sounds about right. And my point to brought up, bring up that question is, it Chrome OS always felt to me what Google should have done and what Google should have done with their mobile strategy. And maybe that's what they wanted to do with Android. And for an um, unpublic reason, Android went the way it went and not uh, the way Chrome OS is right now, especially if we speak about updates. Well, there are a lot of political reasons why something like Chrome OS wouldn't necessarily be the optimal situation uh, for Android. I don't think Android would have reached the success that it had today if it was updated more often, but the trade-off was that Google had more control. The carriers and manufacturers having as much, if not equal control that Google has on that platform is very much part of the reason why Android is so successful today. Uh, and it's also part of the reason why Windows Phone basically dis- disappeared into a corner. Um, so I don't want to get too much into the political reasons, but I don't think they could have done it on Android and get away with it, really. Okay, I, I get that. But I guess my point was more on the side of they saw the mistake they did with Android and they didn't want to make those mistakes again with Chrome OS. And that's why Chrome OS can update itself and blah, blah, blah. But Chrome was always able to update itself like that. It's just that because the OS is based on Chrome, they just sort of built that in because, like, why not? It's there. I think it even uses the exact same update framework as Chrome does on the desktop. So I don't think it's, like... That. really more uh, it's not a reaction to how android turned out so much as a coincidence because that's how chrome was from the start by design because if you want to always have your browser be as secure as possible and that was one of the guiding tentpole things when they started chrome in the first place um then you sort of don't have a choice to also bring that to chrome os if you want it to be at least as good as chrome on the desktop uh there was a, a sort of I'm not sure how to put this. Basically, when they modularized Android, uh, there was a side effect. And the side effect was that a lot of the things that were previously part of the operating system were part of the Android open source project distribution, which is, um, let's say you're Amazon and you want to use Android on the Kindle, but you aren't interested necessarily in having a distribution of Android that has all of Google's services loaded onwards. You can go to the Android open source project and download the entire uh, source code for that project and build your own version of Android. It will just be missing a lot of Google-specific things. Well, part of that side effect that I mentioned where Google modularized some things is they use that opportunity to bring things in and make them proprietary. So previously, Android had an email client uh, that was part of AOSP, and that meant that... uh, other handset makers didn't necessarily need to make an email client of their own. They could just use the one that came with AOSP. Uh, now, many people didn't do this because the email client that they had on AOSP was terrible, but it was there if you wanted it. Uh, now, if you download AOSP, there is no email client, and basically the email client you get is the one that is part of one of Google's mo- mail modules, basically. And the most surprising was, if I recall correctly, um, the open source project add a web browser in it. Yes. So you end up like I own a couple of Android phones at that period, and I rem- I'm reminding myself right now that it it was kind of weird because 
on the same phone, you add a mail client that worked with everything except Gmail. And then you add the <laughs> Gmail app. And obviously, you add the, let's call it the equivalent of WebKit on iOS as the internet browser. I think that's what it was called. It was just called browser. Yeah. Oh, browser then. Yeah, it's really, really like, classic name for an internet browser. And then you add Chrome. And for unknown reasons, and obviously because Android is more flexible on that, some application will launch Chrome, some other application will launch the browser. And you try to make it consistent, and it didn't work for, I don't know, but... Yeah, and there was sort of a reason why you would want to include browser next to Chrome. And the reason for that is because browser was open source, they could do hardware-specific optimizations, whereas Chrome cannot. Uh, or at least hardware manufacturers can't go in and optimize it because it's not, well, I guess it technically is open source, except the Chrome that you're going to be getting isn't going to be the open source version that your manufacturer made. It's going to be the one that comes straight from Google. Therefore, they can't bundle in those optimizations. So browser was worthwhile back in those days, except now it just doesn't exist anymore. Um, yeah, and is... most approved uh, hardware manufacturers uses Chrome. Because they are approved yeah. by Google, so... Right, well, that that's sort of the thing. So, as I said, uh, they modularized things, they made them proprietary to Google, which means now you need to follow Google's rules and become an officially Google-approved Android device to get those parts that were previously in AOSP. And that caused quite an uproar in the community back in those days, and now nobody talks about it because everybody forgot, uh, because nobody cares about the AOSP, really, except for nerds. Um... But the beauty of the model is that if Google wants to completely change the music app from being one thing to a complete opposite thing, they can deploy an update and not need to ship an entire OS update like Apple did for Apple Music recently. Uh, and this happened uh, because I was in uh, San Francisco when Google announced Google Music and we were in the audience and they basically say, yeah, uh the music app is just going to become Google Music and you're going to have this cloud music library thing built right in. Uh, no need to worry about it anymore. Done are the days of uh, managing your files over USB. So that was pretty exciting. Um, and another cool thing that Play Services can do is they can provide backported APIs of features from future OSs to older versions of the OSs in order to reduce fragmentation. Uh, because, of course, the running gag with Android is there's fragmentation because no one ever gets any OS updates. So if you're a software developer uh, and you're coming from maybe an iOS background, you might think, well, that sucks because I can't target these features that are only in the latest OSs. Well, now they're moving more and more of that stuff into Google Play services so that for example, I don't remember which version this was, but they completely revamped the location services framework to be more power efficient, uh, which is good because Android is not very good at power efficiency. Um, and uh, luckily, any other OS that had Google Play services that was recent enough to get that uh, that patch uh, got it instead of needing to be on the latest version of the OS, which is, I mean, it's great for Android users. Um, there are still some features you just can't bundle into that stuff because you require lower level access than what is available to Google Play services. But honestly, it's a pretty good, sweet deal. I mean, 
that would be pretty cool to have on iOS. I'm not so sure, to be honest. Like, oh, I, I, I'm interested in this. Let me know why you don't. Hmm. I could see why you might want to just get an update for Apple Music to get the latest bugs and not have an 8.4.1 to fix obvious stuff in this application. But I'm still thinking about when Google Play Services was announced and their main selling point was it is compatible with Android 2.3. It's like they were not touting those new features and those new improvements. They just said like, yeah, we have new stuff. That's fine. But hey, you have new stuff on old devices, which will work, obviously, but might not be optimized. And yeah. Well, I mean, there is a luxury in being able to say, like on iOS, I only support iOS 9 with my apps that I'm releasing this fall. Screw you, users of old, uh, older OSs. Whereas if you were targeting the Google Play services, you technically would have no good reason to limit yourself to the newest OS because, well, A, you know that there's only maybe like 3% of overall Android users who are on that OS, but also if the feature is technically supported all the way back to 2.3, why not, you know? It's more tempting to support larger swaths of OSs, even though you might not necessarily test against all those OSs and realize your app is a slow piece of shit on, like, a Galaxy Nexus. Yeah, I think my main my main point about those two strategies is they both work kind of enough. Like, they, they are good strategies for both products. Like, Apple is able to say that if you want a new feature, you should go on the new OS, and they're pretty sure that, like, let's say, after, of their user base will be on the new OS in six months. And they don't have any incentive to bring, to, to maybe make those new features backward compatible because they know that in six months, half of their user base will be on the latest version. And maybe like in eight months, like a qu- uh, three quarter, quarters of their user base will be compared to Android where this problem is still happening where you just said like fragmentation and then a solution where you can just say like just update a nap quote-unquote and that's it you get the latest features well let me amend sort of what my perfect scenario for ios in some way would be it's not to say that uh like apple music will be supported all the way back to ios 4.3 that like that's not what i'm suggesting at all uh though that would be pretty funny but um uh, my idea is more like instead of having these point releases, which are just bug fixes, or uh, we're going to talk about Siri in a little bit, like Siri supports a new kind of sports score. So we had to update the entire OS and have you turn off your phone for like 20 minutes while it updates. Like if you have these kinds of small granular updates, um, I think that that gets really annoying and we get to the os burnout thing that i suggested earlier uh as potentially being a thing that could happen uh whereas if you make these components updatable on their own you don't have to release os as as often but you can still say like you have to update to the next os to actually get the next batches of updates basically it's incremental updates just from that point release except you just 
use that as a tactic to have point releases less often less often if that makes sense hmm. oh i see and because of that modularity you can update the modules more frequently than if you say well we don't want to have 20 updates this year to the os so we're going to have five and we're just going to hold on to these changes until the next update like instead of doing that you can just push the updates out automatically plus you don't have to make people reboot their phones and spend 20 minutes waiting for the update to be finished and stuff it's just a overall better experience in my eyes anyway yeah i start to see your your point here but at the same time i'm I'm like, if they have the latitude to just pull out more updates, what's the what up, uh, more updates to the OS? The only downside is yes, your phone needs to reboot, and okay, that's it. Yeah, but it's still like not really fun. And I know that like I'm a power user, and I don't do updates bec- like that if I know it's like a tiny minor thing. Because I'm like, yeah, who cares? I don't want to actually let go of my phone for 20 minutes while you do this update. Yeah, I guess what happened is you got burned with betas. Because seriously, I did updates today on my iPad. Like I did the 8.4.1 update and it took two minutes. I guess. Well, I, I Oh, that's the other thing, though. I never do over-the-air updates. I always go through iTunes. So maybe now you're going to laugh at me for saying it's going to take an hour, 20 minutes to download this IPSW file. So that's it for the week. Um, See you in two weeks, people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. No, but... So you're still open. No, but seriously. There's a reason I don't use uh, over-the-air updates ever, and that's because if a jailbreak comes along, which works, over-the-air updates are not compatible with that jailbreak. You need to restore. So... So I'm always ready to be able to install the jailbreak if it comes out. I always restore with that. Well, not restore with iTunes. I upgrade with iTunes so that it has the correct upgrade path so that I can always jailbreak immediately instead of having to restore my phone and then jailbreak. Does that make sense? I know it's not like a mainstream reason, but... Right. It, It does make sense. But if I have a reason not to use iTunes, I'll make sure that this reason is as stupid as it is but at least i won't be using itunes well you're talking to someone who basically never used the app store on his phone until two years ago (sighs) like i always bought all my apps through itunes and sync them through itunes because i didn't trust the app store on the phone (laughs) because i got burnt in ios 2 when it never worked oh my goodness anyway back to the topic at hand uh so Modular modularization on Android, it's not a perfect fix, but it's the best they can do within the infrastructure they built around for themselves. Uh, unfortunately, speaking of infrastructure, uh, there is nothing as elegant as what Android is doing that is possible under the current iOS security model. So everything that we theorized is not actually doable on iOS right now. So uh, that's fun. And on top of that, uh, you might be thinking, well, maybe... Apple can sort of take apps that are bundled with EOS and start putting them on the App Store and slowly modularize that way. Well, they're sort of going in the completely opposite direction uh, because iOS 9 has Find My Friends and Find My iPhone, which are now bundled with the operating system. And they also introduce a new OS level application, which is iCloud Drive. And there's been podcasts recently that got uh, bundled into the operating system and iBooks and... 
they just seem to be bringing more apps into the operating system instead of out, and that worries me very much. Yeah, but those apps are updatable via the App Store. Not anymore. Are you sure about that? Because they, I think podcasts is included in iOS 8, but it is updatable via the iTunes Store, or the App Store plan. I don't think so. Oh, really? Hmm. Because it seems... Because under the security model, you can't modify those apps. Except you're, if you're Apple. Nope, not even. Hmm. It requires a, basically to go into the software update mode to do anything to those things. It's the Otherwise, you wouldn't need to jailbreak your phone to be able to modify those files, basically, is what I'm saying. Hmm. That's, that's interesting, though. Because, t- to be honest, I... S- don't want those applications. Like, it will be more apps to hide somewhere on the phone and blah, blah, blah. So, but I was seriously sure that, for example, for podcasts, it was prompting you to download it and you went on the App Store and downloaded it. And all No, now it's just part of the OS. And it used to prompt you to do those things. Uh, and it still prompts you to go download the remaining apps that are not bundled into the operating system, which I think is like, airport utility and maybe a couple other things um yeah the i the life suite and the i work suite yeah it still prompts you for that when you restore your phone but the other apps are all bundled into the software image hmm because this reminds me of when the iphone 6 got the release remember if you got a 16 gig version of it it didn't come with i work pre-installed but if you have a, a bigger iphone it came pre-installed yeah, and still, I had that. And, and the first thing I did was uninstall all the apps. Yeah, but those are, those are still getting updates via the App Store. Yes, because they're not part of the soft. They're not part of the system partition. They're part of the user partition. Is what I'm trying to say. Oh, okay. Now I got that. Okay, but maybe those apps are part of this user partition too. Like find my phone, find my friends on iOS nine. Maybe that's what they are doing, and. It will go back to your possible solution of on each major version, you want to bring everyone at a certain level of fixes, but you could still get later smaller fixes, minor fixes through the more frequent update process and not wait for a big OS update. And then at the next major update of the soft, of the OS, you still get a boost and you bring everybody again to another big level like obviously there's no jailbreak on ios 9 so i can't verify which partition they're in necessarily but i'll try to poke around and for the next episode try to solve this mystery once and for all but i am fairly certain that they are in the system partition uh next up is flexibility and this addresses less app specific things and more service specific things uh, and really the question I'm trying to ask here is, if Siri really lives in the cloud like everyone claims it does, why does it require an operating system update for her to gain new functionality or display new types of information? Uh, and really what I'm talking about is sometimes when you ask Siri for some information, you get a rich template back uh, with some nice little formatting for like sports scores or movie theaters or... Or unit conversions. Kind of Unit conversions, right. And those things are all defined locally in the file system, in the system partition of the OS. 
And if you want to teach Siri new tricks, you need to update the operating system. But if it's a cloud service, why can't it just learn those things via the cloud? Uh, and I think it's interesting to look at how big web companies are approaching the development of their native apps for inspiration. Um, Specifically, I'm talking about Facebook, of course, uh, because Twitter doesn't do shit with their app. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Facebook has a thing that they use in their app called Component Kit, uh, which is inspired by React, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and it lets you create components. And a way to describe components is it's like a description of a view hierarchy that you can use as a template to build a view hierarchy, but like the component itself does not contain the views. It's just how to build the views. Uh, and those uh, view hierarchy templates are declarative, functional, composable, blah, 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 buzzwords. Yeah. Uh, the interesting part of that though, is because everything is declarable, uh, a component declaration could be serialized and then updated and downloaded over the network. And then you can just, basically use component kit to basically build your own kind of web-like dom inside your application except it's all native views and stuff uh which i realize this explanation is probably not very it doesn't make very much sense if you're not a developer i'm very sorry but this is a very developer-centric episode today uh, no, but I could see that where you kind of have a schema that explains your data and a schema that explains your views. Yes, and what's very interesting about this, uh, well, I'll get to it in a little bit because it's going to cross over too much with another thing. Uh, so one of the things I was thinking was, well, why doesn't Siri just define its content types on the server and then give it some kind of component kit-like representation of what the layout of that information should be. And then when you get your response back, if you don't have that content type or the latest version of that content type, you just pull it from the server and display it. That would be very cool. And it's not happening. Uh, and that's one of the ways that Facebook's lineage as a web company gives them insight into how things can be done that companies used to developing fully native applications just don't even think of, really. Um, because the the Apple way of doing things is we're going to have a folder with a bunch of dynamic libraries in them, and in them are the exact UI view objects we are going to spawn in the app. Uh, and that's great, except you can't really... Well, you could fetch them over the cloud, except they don't, um, which is another problem. Um, but one of the biggest signs that Facebook is a completely different company in terms of mindset is because they are the ones who are responsible for React Native, uh, which is incredibly popular in the iOS development community these days. Not necessarily popular in terms of people using it, but popular in terms of people discussing it and what it could mean for the future of software development. It's sort of one of those aspirational things that look cool, but you're not sure if Apple will ever allow it to be on the store for a long period of time and then everybody just stays away from it in fear um everyone except facebook um because they made it so react native is very different it lets you write most of your application in javascript you can use components which are like those component kit components uh where you define uh basically the content that you want to display in your application in these components and then you can reuse them uh 
and the entire view hierarchy of your application is represented as a DOM, like a web page. And this probably terrifies all of the app, native app developers because everybody hates the DOM, right? Um, in practice, it's not actually that bad, um, but it scares a lot of people. And last week, there was a lot of buzz on the internet about services like App Hub, which basically allow you to take the JavaScript file in your React app and submit updates to that to those JS files really uh, over the cloud and bypass Apple's approval pro- uh, approval process entirely, which makes a lot of people very very excited, uh, but also probably rings some bells at Apple headquarters because that is sort of allowed but not really allowed depending on how you interpret and read the terms of services, which is another issue entirely. Ding 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 ding. Yeah, I, I can just imagine the discussion like where you have the, like the red telephone in Tim Scope's office. It's like, yes, Eddie, yes. Oh my goodness, people wants to skip the review process. Oh my god, press the red button now. Okay. Yeah, and I should point out that uh, Facebook has at least one, but multiple apps using React right now in the store, and they're not getting pulled. Um, but they're also not updating them dynamically as far as i can tell and even then there's sort of a line as to what you can do basically you can't really add significant new features without going through the approval process another time but i'm not sure if anyone on the app store team actually pays attention to these apps after they've been approved to see if there are any new features that have been added uh so it's that sort of a problem um now what's interesting what's interesting about react is because it's all javascript uh but it's all javascript but it's still talking to entirely native uh views and uh objects um you can do some pretty crazy stuff with react now all of this is sort of theoretical uh i don't think anybody's implemented it because there aren't enough react native users out there in the wild to actually make this worthwhile um but one of the things that was suggested was uh, I've got, uh, let's say, a news app, and I want to sh- embed a tweet into my app. Well, right now, the way to embed tweets into an app is you either go download uh, the Twitter SDK from their website uh, and have a bunch of classes that Twitter made that may or may not contain crazy tracking code because you can never know if you can trust Twitter or not these days, uh, and embed that into your app and then spawn one of those views somewhere in your thing. Or you display all of your content in a web view and then just use their JavaScript embeds, which basically do the same thing. Um, with React, you sort of get the best of both uh, the best of both worlds where you can query the, twi- the Twitter server for their React.js for a Twitter embed that is native. And then you can embed that into uh, basically your article if you're a news app and get an entirely native view version of the Twitter embed instead of having to go through a web view or having to download an SDK and embed it explicitly into your app. Now, basically, you can just integrate things willy-nilly uh, in your app dynamically, uh, which is interesting uh, because it allows you to do a bunch of stuff that basically extensions don't provide. You can do embeds like that. You can do view controllers like that where you just slide in 
a view controller from another application, if it's entirely done in a React and you can display information in that view controller that doesn't belong to you because you got it dynamically from somewhere else on the internet. Uh, the other scary part about this and the reason that I would suppose that Apple would be very opposed to this is security. <laughs> I mean, it's already a problem on the internet where you can load JavaScript from anywhere and have a lot of security problems within the browser. But now imagine that with native applications and you're talking about something much, much more complicated. And what happens if, for example, you download a JavaScript file from another website and that website wants uh, your location data? Well, the only app that can query for that location data is the containing app. And there's no real concept of, well, I want this React extension to not have access to my location, but I want the parent process to have access to location. It's just, it's clusterfuck because you're sort of re-implementing the OS within the application in sort of crazy ways and it doesn't work. Um, so it, it must be a real headache for Apple to think about these kinds of uh, future-facing app development frameworks, especially because they don't control it. Uh, that probably also really bugs them. Um, but I think that there's a lot of things in the approach that React uses that are really, really useful for apps that present different kinds of content. And that would be basically Facebook, uh, because they have very many different kinds of posts within the newsfeed. And if you create a new newsfeed post type, you don't necessarily want to ship an entirely new app if it's something you can do dynamically over the cloud by just pushing another JS file that says this is the component for, let's say, uh, on this day event because there are new on this day things on Facebook. Um, so that's one approach. Uh, Twitter, Twitter cards. Uh, you could, in theory, write a Twitter card entirely in React JS and then put that on your server. And then I'm not sure if you would actually be able to do it entirely cross-platform where it works across Android, iOS, and web, but it sounds possible given what I know of React Native and React on JavaScript. It sounds possible. Uh, you could do native integrated Twitter cards, which would be better than crappy web view based integrated Twitter cards or Twitter cards that each time you want to support a new uh, media type, you have to update the entire app. Uh, that would be really cool. And of course, Siri, uh, esports are big. If what if I want to show esports scores in Siri? I don't want to force an entire OS update so people can get their lol stats in Siri. Um, so why don't you just make a lol component for Siri and download that instead? Uh, so that's like one of the approaches. Uh, there are other approaches, of course. There's apps like Glide, uh, which is not called Glide anymore. It's called TapJoy, but I had these notes made so early that it wasn't renamed. Uh, and the thing about TapJoy is it's a framework that lets you create an entire app by creating folders in Dropbox and dragging in images and video and text and audio and basically dynamically generate an application from a hierarchy of content. Uh, and that is very interesting in terms of basically dynamically generating an app out of content like that's sort of weird but i think if apple paid attention to these kinds of frameworks they might get some inspiration in for ways they could improve the os's cloud services to 
basically update themselves dynamically instead of requiring OS updates. Yeah, this uh, Clyde framework reminds me of CMSs. You just put data on it, then it spit out a web page or, in this case, an iOS app. Yeah, and I mean, I haven't played with any of the apps that have shipped with TapJoy, but what I've seen of them is actually pretty impressive for something that's basically made from a folder in Dropbox. Uh, Now... I'm giving Apple a lot of shit for uh, not taking this stuff seriously, but I guess I should point out that they do have one foot in this field, except we haven't quite seen the results of that yet, and that is the Apple News format, which is going to be available within the next few weeks when Apple News launches alongside iOS 9. And also, it wouldn't be a limitless possibility episode without us giving shit to Apple. Yes, um, so <laughs> Apple News format is theoretically their response to Facebook's instant articles, which are basically a way for web publishers to make their articles appear in a native container instead of being displayed via the web. I haven't seen any information about the Apple News format since they've announced it on stage at WWDC, so I'm very much looking forward to being impressed, maybe, uh, when iOS 9 launches and publications have articles made with the Apple News format uh, in circulation. But for now, we can only speculate as to what this means. And, well, it looks good. I'm not sure what the extent of what you can do with the format is. But, hey, at least they're doing something. Um, And from what I can tell, uh, Apple Music stuff is very similar to that. I don't think it is entirely web-based. I think it is basically, like, dynamically generated native stuff based on representations of what's in the cloud. So they're doing some of it, but it's not enough of it for their cloud services to feel entirely in the cloud and not like most of the service is living on the device and it's only receiving like, it's only decoding the message that is being sent as opposed to the entire thing is coming from the cloud. Yeah, and to be honest though, yeah, Apple Music feels more on the ITMS side compared to Apple News. I played a little bit with Apple News uh, using the iPhone SIM and it feels to me like a good native RSS reader compared to Apple Music which feels like I'm receiving data and then some kind of web process or web view is like chewing it locally and then something happens. Yeah, that's definitely the case. So My point with this episode was not necessarily to endorse any of the products that we mentioned as being uh, perfect implementations of the things they are doing. Uh, I don't think any of these frameworks, whether it be ComponentKit, React, uh, TapJoy, or uh, the modularization in Android, I don't think any of these things are quite perfect. But I think that the ideas that are behind them could be done at the OS level to make it seem much more like a citizen of the cloud services era than it currently is, because right now it sort of still feels like cloud services are tacked onto iOS, despite iCloud trying to be as integrated as it can. It doesn't quite feel like it's there yet. And there's a big thing that I left out because I wanted it to be the final punch in the stomach to Apple. And that is um, Swift's emphasis on compile time stuff 
works against flexible software with runtime malleability. And that's part of what made Objective-C so fun. And it's even the technology that powers most of the Objective-C and Cocoa developer features that we take for granted as iOS and Mac developers. And it's sad to see that stuff going away because in a way they're disabling their new language from having more flexible and future-facing approaches to software design. And I don't think that's necessarily the right direction. Uh, and I'm not just saying this because I spent all day fighting with trying to get my Swift libraries to link correctly, <laughs> but I don't know. It's sort of sad. And there's going to be a link in the show notes to a eulogy for Objective-C, uh, which is a session by uh what's his name aaron hillgas from uh big name ranch uh big name big nerd ranch <laughs> and uh he talks about in depth like what does obc's runtime malleability um power behind the scenes and there's a lot of really powerful stuff in coco that we use and rely on that isn't even possible really in swift and that's worrisome going forward uh, and that's all I've had. I have. Good. So you can find um, Limitless Possibility on the internet at limitlesspossibility.net. Also, uh, you can find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 22. You can... 23. Oh, 23? 23. No, I think we're at 22. Really? Yes. <laughs> okay, let me uh, check. Uh, let me check. We're the best of this. Yes. You're right. It's 22. I am right. So, like I just said, you can find the show notes at limitlesspossibility.net slash 22. Thanks, Yannick. You can also find the podcast on Twitter at at limipo underscore podcasts. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter at at Lucconoche, L-U-C-C-O-N-O-C-H-E. And I'm at Sakurina, S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.